Uh, God's people have always had a distinctive view of sexual morality and how and in what contexts our sexual nature created by God should be expressed. Uh, That was true for God's Old Testament people, as you heard, in what may have been a confronting reading from Leviticus. Remember how it starts. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must not do as they do in Egypt. You must not do as they do in Canaan. God is saying to his people, you, my people, have to be different, for I am your God. And then there is a long list of people with whom it's forbidden to have sex and to marry, and a list of sexual practices and activities that are forbidden, relationships and practices that were permissible in the surrounding nations but are not to be in Israel. God's people were to be distinctive. They were not to defile themselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. This expectation of God that his people be distinctive, different from the surrounding culture in their sexual practice, is repeated in the New Testament and continues for believers today. An expectation summarised succinctly for us in Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So what does it mean to honour marriage? How can we do it? Why should we do it? And what can we do where we know we have fallen short What can we do with our consciousness of sexual sin? So what does it mean to honour marriage? Firstly, what is the marriage our author's talking about? Well, it's not marriage as a human construct or a government-regulated institution. It is marriage as instituted by God in Genesis 2.24, where God says a man is to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is the passage to which both our Lord in Matthew 19 and the Apostle Paul turned when they were teaching on marriage and sexual morality. And it's a passage the first readers of Hebrews, so familiar with the Old Testament, would have known well. Marriage, in God's word, is the one flesh union of a man and a woman that creates a new family where the loyalty of husband and wife are now to each other, even before loyalty to their parents. The man is to leave his father and mother. It speaks of the man leaving, for in that culture, the original culture into which Genesis was spoken, oh, and in the Greco-Roman culture of the first readers of Hebrews, in that culture the marriage was formally signified by the woman physically leaving her home to be taken into her husband's home. She had already left her father and mother. But now we read that the man who stayed in the home had to leave his parents in being united to his wife so that she came before them in his loyalty and affections. This God-given union is a union that by its nature is exclusive of all others. 
There is no room in the one flesh union for another without destroying the union. It is a lifelong union. Just as your inhabiting of your own flesh, your own body is lifelong. It only ends in death. And Jesus taught that those who are joined together in this union are joined together by God, Matthew 19. They're no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together. It's God's intention that everyone entering marriage enters into an exclusive and lifelong union. Marriage was and is a public commitment, a public union, not a purely private arrangement because it affects relationships amongst families, families in communities. And marriage in Genesis is the answer to the not-goodness of the man being alone, both in providing complementary help, in giving companionship, and in being the possibility and context for the birth and nurture of children who would also be in God's image. For humanity had been commanded in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply, and that was something that the alone man in Genesis chapter 2, the alone man in the garden couldn't do, and so couldn't extend the rule entrusted to Adam over all the earth. Marriage is the answer to the not-goodness of man being alone. And marriage requires consent, whether of the parties or of their families or of both, for it is ultimately a voluntary union freely entered into by the man and the woman and their families. It's this marriage that is to be honoured, respected, given the value and worth it deserves by all. And that means that we're not to let it be debased and we're to respect and preserve the integrity of individual marriages, both of our own and those of others. Debased. How might marriage be devalued? Well, by undermining the uniqueness of the one flesh union between a man and a woman that's at the heart of marriage and denying that such a union is a creator good. That is, it can be debased by institutionalised accepted sexual immorality or by the embrace of asceticism. Now, there was in New Testament times institutionalised sexual immorality by men that intruded into the marriage relationship Prostitution and the use of prostitutes <coughs> was widely accepted and sometimes this practice was actually justified as a form of birth control in a community with a high maternal mortality rate, that is where many women died in childbirth. Oh, and sometimes such prostitution was associated with festivities held in pagan temples in drinking parties. You see Paul confront this acceptance of prostitution in 1 Corinthians 6. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I'll not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. 
The Corinthians, or some of them, were claiming that hunger for sex was a physical appetite like any other physical appetite, and so it should be allowed to be satisfied. What was the big deal about prostitutes? But Paul would have none of that. He takes the one flesh union created by intercourse seriously, and he takes our spiritual union with Christ seriously, a union which guarantees the resurrection of the bodies of believers. So Christians had to be different. There was no place for this accepted prostitution. And marriage was also devalued by the acceptance of serial divorce. Now that was an issue in both the Jewish and the Gentile communities. Divorce was simple. As Ferguson writes, a simple oral or written notice was sufficient by one or both parties. It could be initiated by either the husband or the wife in Gentile society, but only by the husband in Jewish society, and it really was simple, except in couples where there was a substantial dowry and the economics of the divorce became difficult. But all accepted easy and serial divorce. Yet Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 5 and 19 that God expects marriages to be for life. And going through the motions of a divorce did not prevent the subsequent remarriage from being adulterous, unacceptable to God. Now, of course, there's a lot more to be said about divorce and remarriage. But it's clear that God's intention is that marriage is to be for life. And acceptance of serial divorce using divorce to move on from one partner to another, which was widely accepted, was not acceptable for God's people. Acceptance by men of the right to have other sexual partners, even though married, acceptance of easy and serial divorce, dishonoured marriage in the first century, and it still does today. And yes, marriage as God has instituted it is also debased by applying the term marriage to same-sex cohabitation, a union the God who gave us marriage would never recognise. For scripture calls such same-sex activity sexual, some sex, calls same-sex sexual activity sin, sexual immorality. It is another form of institutionalised sexual immorality that debases marriage. And so just as in the Old Testament uh, and just as in the first century, God's people, Christian people, must be different, must have a distinctive sexual morality and honour marriage as given to us by God. Now there was also another way of dishonouring marriage in that first century society and that was by denying the good of marriage in the name of a body-denying spirituality. We see this in both 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians. So 1 Timothy in Ephesus, there are false teachers who, verse 3, forbade people to marry and ordered them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And again, this false denial of the body and the good of the body 
was also present amongst some in the Corinthians who were saying, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There were those teaching that being married and having sex was base and defiling. Never, says Paul, marriage is created by God. Our bodies are created by God and his creation is good. Sex in marriage is to be received with thankfulness as a way of honouring our kind creator. It does not make you less holy. But of course, while it's a good, we also have to remind ourselves that it is not an absolute good. For Paul in 1 Corinthians commends singleness to those who can be content and devoted to the Lord as single people. You see, just as you can be married and holy, you can be single and holy too. And marriage is a good of this creation only. There'll be no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. But God says to his people, marriage is to be held in honour. The gift of our creator God, the one context he has given us for one flesh union, for sexual union, a union that is intended to be between a man and a woman, lifelong and exclusive. But how do we individually honour marriage? Let me give you a number of points here. Firstly, we can honour marriage by preserving the integrity of our marriages. If we're married, oh, and helping others preserve the integrity of their marriage. Marriage should be honoured by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. See, the context tells us that sexual immorality and adultery are what destroy the integrity of our marriages by defiling, what he says here, the marriage bed. Engaging sexually with a third party who is not our husband or wife profanes what God has made holy. For the sexually immoral defile their marriage by bringing their defilement with them into bed, the defilement they have brought upon themselves by disobeying God. And so believers have to keep away from adultery. Now, adultery is narrowly defined as a married man or woman having sex with someone who is not their husband or wife. No matter what lies adulterers tell themselves, there is never any justification for adultery. It is based on deception and destroys the trust that is at the heart of marriage, the trust that you need to live intimately with another. Adultery is a betrayal, a breaking of promises, and it shames and humiliates the other partner by treating their rights and expectations with contempt. It is cruel, despite our culture so often glamorising it. And believers are have, to have nothing to do with sexual immorality. Now, the word translated here, sexual immorality, pornos, is actually a word that includes all kinds of sexual sins, all kinds of sexual activity outside of marriage, all those things, for example, that were mentioned in Leviticus 18. So sexual immorality includes frequenting prostitutes, it includes what used to be called fornication, which is actually sex outside of marriage, sex before you're married. It includes incest, and yes, it includes same-sex sexual activity. In our day, it also includes pornography, 
for that sex outside marriage and it ends up intruding a third party into the marriage. The women, the husband usually, has been lusting after and fantasising about. And pornography both leads to the objectification of his wife and it creates distance, not intimacy, between them. And it is sin. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 5, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here again we see how distinctive the sexual practices of God's people are to be, both then and now. For some of those activities listed under sexual immorality, like sex before marriage or same-sex sexual activity, are ones our society sees no problems with, even expects. But believers need to break with all these, despite our society endorsing and legitimising them. And if you're not yet married, well, now is the time to resolve not to have sex before marriage. And now is the time to turn your back on watching porn, whether that's at the movies or on your phone or wherever. You see, sexual sins, as Paul knew, can be enslaving, mastering. And so if you feel trapped, seek help, because there is help available, and talk to someone. But we have to preserve the integrity of our marriages. And secondly, we need to preserve, if we're married, the reality of our own marriages. And that includes where there is no physical impediment, continuing sexual activity in our marriages. Now this may be a painful topic for some, but this is the point of 1 Corinthians 7. Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sexual union in marriage is part of the good of marriage. Now, I'm not speaking to your specific circumstances, but if you are married and sexual activity has ceased within your marriage, it is not the way it is meant to be. And so you should seek counsel, trusting God's word. You should seek counsel to change, to address the issues that may have led to that, whether they're simple issues like lack of sleep and exhaustion or more complex issues, deep layers of hurt and resentment. And often that cessation of sexual activity in a marriage has been a unilateral decision made only by one partner. And it can be so hard for the other partner to even raise the issue. It sounds so selfish. But Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7 of a legitimate expectation each can have of the other's body. So trust God's word and address the issue. And if that means getting help, and again there is help available, even if you're embarrassed to talk about it, there are people who do. 
get help and preserve the reality of your marriage. We honour marriage, thirdly, by working at maintaining our marriages, working at things like our communication and resolving conflict as it arises. And that takes an investment of time, intentional time together. And you should be planning to grow in intimacy, especially in those busy years. You know, you're both working, say, and you've got kids to run around and you can just get carried along with the routine but be growing apart. Well, you may end up spending longer together when the kids have left home, just the two of you, than when the kids are with you. And you don't want to arrive at that time living with a stranger. So plan to increase and maintain intimacy in your marriage. Do things like date nights. Make use of marriage tune-ups and the marriage refreshes and keep talking. Not just about your day and what's happened to the kids, but about your hearts. We honour marriage by fourthly supporting the marriages of others. So in this community as Christians, we shouldn't be flirting with a married man or a woman and if married, we shouldn't flirt with anyone except our husband or wife. And don't allow yourself to get emotionally intimate with someone of the opposite sex. There is a seduction in intimacy and often that emotional intimacy will lead on to physical intimacy and even if it doesn't, you are robbing your partner of what is rightfully theirs. And let's say you see exhaustion as having an impact on another couple's life together. Well, get practical and help offer, say, to mind the kids. Give them a holiday. Fifthly, we help honour marriage amongst us by being real about our own vulnerability to sexual temptation. You see, Paul was speaking in 1 Corinthians to people who consider themselves spiritual. But how does the end? Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's saying to them and to us, don't think you are holier than you are. So if you're married, don't plan long periods apart. That's just, in the Bible's terms, stupid. Right? Don't put yourself in vulnerable situations. You know, lonely nights on business trips with nothing planned to keep your mind on what's good. Don't be drinking too much. All of that increases your vulnerability. And single or married, Scripture tells us we are to flee from sexual immorality. And the person most in danger is the person that thinks that they could never fall. And we help each other honour marriage and we especially help our younger brothers and sisters honour marriage by sixthly addressing the lies of our culture that undermine faithfulness in marriage. You know those lies, you probably heard them. Whatever happens, you must be true to yourself. And so if you feel your marriage is constricting your development as a person, you ought to leave. Well, that is a lie. If you're a believer, actually you must be true to Jesus who calls you to die to yourself. Here's another. You must be happy no matter what. It's your responsibility to ensure your happiness. 
And if, say, you're miserable, suppressing your desire for another, just go ahead. And if you're unhappy with your partner, pursue happiness and move on. Well, again, that's a lie, actually. You must be faithful to Jesus. And why trade fleeting? Why trade eternal happiness for a fleeting happiness, a fleeting experience that really just the vestibule of hell? Here's another lie. You have absolute autonomy over your own self, your own body, and in the end you're only accountable to yourself. So don't let anyone else, like God in his word, tell you how you should live, how you should think about and use your body. Well, no. You are a creature, accountable in all things to your good creator. Seventhly, we honour marriage by developing self-control. Self-control is one of the fruits of the spirit and it's a most helpful characteristic in all situations in life. Self-control makes you trustworthy, trustworthy to keep your promise, trustworthy with the vulnerability of intimacy, for it means you can be directed by consideration of the good of the other, not by your passion. And one of the great things about the Christian teaching on marriage, one of the most helpful things, is it helps you develop self-control by teaching you to say no to sexual desire outside of marriage. It teaches you to say no where you most feel you want to say yes. It helps you develop self-control. And if you're not yet married, you should aim to develop self-control before you're married. You can and should be a virgin when you marry. It'll actually be helpful to you. And if you're married, you ought to practice self-control in marriage, a self-control that even in intimacy can allow you to put the other's comfort and pleasure first. Finally, number eight, we honour marriage and help each other honour marriage by nurturing the faith that sustains our commitment to this distinctive view of marriage. Believing the gospel, reminding yourself of the gospel, tells you that the one who gives this command loves you, that he commands you for your good. Oh, and it tells you of your hope that this life is not all there is and so helps you persevere in purity and faithfulness. And it tells you that there is one to whom you can draw near always for help in time of need, that you are never alone. So nurture faith and work as God commands at honouring marriage. Be serious about it. Work at the things that you might find difficult that might even cause you grief. But why? Why should we practice this distinctive view of sexual morality? Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. We live this way because as believers in Jesus, we belong to God. God is committed to marriage as he's created it. He's committed to our good in giving us marriage. He knows that the marriage he has given us is for our good individually and the good of our societies. This commitment to a lifelong exclusive intimacy is actually the context for many of us 
for human flourishing and growing in Christian character. And it's the context for the birth and nurture of children that gives them stability and security as they grow up. And that's good for them and it's good for our society, for its stability. And God wants his people to be like himself. He is faithful. He expects his people to be faithful people who keep their word. In some small way we see in Ephesians 5, don't we, that our marriages are to reflect and signify the commitment God has to his people. And sexual immorality is inconsistent with belonging to Jesus, being one of his holy people. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you are bought at a price. Honour God with your bodies. And of course God is opposed to the idolatry that so often supports sexual immorality, whether it is the worship of Baal or the worship of our autonomous human wills. God is committed to marriage and God will judge. He sees all, even the things we do in secret. Proverbs 5, which is a warning against adultery, reminds us that your ways are in full view of the Lord and he examines all your paths. In this life, God judges. He's an active judge. He judges us often by giving us up to our folly. You can read of the woes of the adulterer in Proverbs 5, but we actually see them in our own society, don't we? Shame, guilt, loss of family, impoverishment, loneliness. But God doesn't just judge in this life, he judges us at the end. The sexually immoral, we are told, have no place in the heavenly city. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The sexually immoral are those who cannot enter that heavenly city. So the first reason we should live this distinctive life is love of God and a desire to honour him. And the second is love of neighbour. Remember how Hebrews 13 started? Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The destruction of a marriage, the debasing of, a sexual, inti of sexual intimacy, the betrayal of trust all wrong our neighbours. And we may try and justify our wrong, you know, the deficiencies of the love of our husband or wife or our own needs. You know, people tell you, I couldn't live without. Now, when they tell you that, you just tell them that they are lying, okay? Because if they go without, they'll keep breathing. Okay, it might, right? It's just a lie. Sexual immorality and adultery are loveless and they are not victimless. That's clearly true of adultery, which hurts wife and children. But it's also true of sexual immorality, whether it's between consenting adults or not. You see, a future husband or wife is affected if you allow yourself to be enslaved to porn or to practice casual sex. Intimacy, their intimacy is devalued. And your society suffers where marriage is undermined through family breakdown and instability in relationships. Oh, and God will judge this lovelessness. Again, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 
where he said it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Verse 6, in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. So, brothers and sisters, we should be in no doubt this is God's will. It is God's will that marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexual, sexually immoral. Sexual immorality and adultery are sin and God will judge them. So what can we do where we know we have fallen short? What can we do with our consciousness of sexual sin? And that consciousness may affect many of us. Well, let me answer that question in two parts. Firstly, do you know that you are sinning now? Engaging, say, in sexual immorality. If that's you, you should repent. You should acknowledge that what you are doing is wrong. You should stop and seek forgiveness. For there is forgiveness. And seek help also by talking to a trusted Christian of the same sex. For these sins always complicate your life. And knowing how to stop may need help and encouragement. But whatever you do, if you know you're sinning now in this way, don't be sitting here knowing, say, you're watching porn or lusting in your heart after somebody else's spouse or sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Don't be sitting here and thinking this does not apply to you. 1 Thessalonians 4, God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God. So it's not the preacher telling you to stop. It's not the church telling you to stop. It is God himself. And to keep on in your sinful behaviour is to be rejecting God himself. And sooner or later you'll have to choose what you love more, the living God or your sin. But to leave Christ to satisfy your sexual desires to be like Esau, to trade away what is an eternal blessing for a fleeting satisfaction. And of course to do that is to embrace eternal death. So repent and seek forgiveness. But what of many of us, what can we do with our consciousness of sexual sin in the past? Those memories arise to accuse, don't they? And the devil will use those memories to rob you of confidence and peace. And as you've grown more in Christ, regret for what you've done, the way you've hurt others, may threaten to overwhelm you. What can you do? Well, you need to be confident in the Saviour that you have trusted. David found forgiveness even for his adultery. You need to be confident in what God has said of the work of Jesus, his son, in Hebrews. It is God's will that Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross makes you holy. That is, without any defilement in God's sight, cleansed completely, fit for his presence. That's what Jesus' death does for you. 
And this cleansing is for all time. Jesus never ceases to intercede for us, to bring before God on our behalf his shed blood. He always lives to save us, to save completely and for all time those who trust him. And Jesus is the one to whom we can always draw near for help and comfort, even with the most troubling of memories, or to draw near for help for those whose lives we have marred by our own disobedience. If you're conscious of that sin in the past, you need to trust what Jesus has done for you, to trust it completely and draw near. Marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Brothers and sisters, as believers in the good, holy creator God through trusting his son Jesus, as those who now know that to serve him with reverence and awe, we have been called to a distinctive sexual morality. We should be clear and unashamed about what God commands, for it's given for his creature's good, given for our good. So let's make sure all of us honour God's good gift of marriage. Make sure that we protect our marriages from views and practices that would debase and destroy marriage. Make sure that we preserve the integrity of our own marriages and that of our brothers and sisters, and make sure that we promote marriage as God's good gift to all, by example and in word. Because that promotion of his good gift of marriage is a way of loving our neighbour, and it honours our God who gave us marriage, our God whom we confess in his desire for the purity of his people, is a consuming fire. Let's pray.